Good morning, brave people. So glad you're here. You know, Jeff was right when he stood up here and he's talking about what stress we go through to try to call services like this. And I was up at 5 o'clock this morning just going back and forth and back and forth. Just the Lord impressed upon my heart, you know, at least we don't have to worry about dodging bullets when we come to church. (laughs) You know what I mean? I wonder if people, pastors, think about canceling church services in persecuted countries because of that. And we're talking about some, well, rain. (laughs) It's like, I think this one ranks right up there with Y2K. It's like, it's just it didn't happen, (laughs) you know. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are gathered together, a few of us, but... We're here, and we want to hear from you, and so we just ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us clearly. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So, some things in life are pretty difficult to grasp. For example, and I don't know how many of you thought of this before, it's become a cliche, but I still can't figure it out. How do non-stick coatings stick to fry pans? (laughs) It's just, I don't get it. And uh, things like two elements like sodium and chlorine, extremely toxic when ingested separately, but when you combine them, they form salt and in the right way, and it gives flavor and zest to food while also providing us with nourishment. Another thing I can't figure out is how my wife puts up with me. (laughs) That's a conundrum. Prayer, yeah. Years ago, one of our former deacons used to say, how is it that a brown cow gives white milk and that those who are washed in the blood of the lamb become white as snow? How does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from all sin? Have you ever analyzed that? Well, here's another one that's hard for me to comprehend intellectually. How can the omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient triune God of the universe make his dwelling within the impotence of a human heart? Yet how can that be true? How can that happen? It's indeed a theological and practical fact. As a matter of fact, it's what Paul preached about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory, And in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19, where he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's what Paul believed in Romans chapter 8, in verse 9. He said, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And again, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he talks about the fact that test yourselves, examine yourselves, see if you are of the faith. Or do you not know this about yourself, that Christ is in you? Galatians 2.20, we just sang about it, but in that verse, Paul talks about the fact that I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then John 17, Jesus' famous high priestly prayer, in verse 23, he says... I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. 
It's also what Paul precisely interceded for as he wrote from a prison cell to the church at Ephesus. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at a few of those verses today as Paul wrote these things. And I'd like to read down through them, verses 14 to 21 in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There are two prayers of Paul highlighted in this letter. The first one is in chapter 1 in verses 15 to 23. And it's a prayer for the Ephesians' enlightenment. That they may know the power and the presence of God in them. The second prayer, our context, is a prayer for enablement. That they may apply the power and the presence of God. In one prayer, the apostle petitions for understanding and for knowledge. In the second one, today's, he petitions for experience. The first is about revelation. The second is about realization. As Lehman Strauss once observed, it's not merely enough to know, but we must be. We must be. Some years ago, I attended a conference And there was a survey taken there of the 1,900 people that attended that conference right here in New England. And more than anything else, people attending church in New England wanted to experience the presence of God in a powerful way. That's what the result of that survey was. Based on the topic of the characteristics of a healthy church, the survey invited participants to rank 30 statements beginning with these words, a local church should dot, 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 and on a scale of one to nine, across the gender, age, socioeconomic, educational, racial, and denominational spectrum, the number one characteristic that people said in that survey was God's empowering presence. That's what makes a church healthy. In last week's message, we emphasized the presence of God, didn't we? We talked about that. Recognizing it as a theological fact, the fact that God was before us, behind us, on the right hand, on the left, above us, below us, in us, and all around us, right? We did that exercise together. It's a theological fact, according to the scripture, but do we actually practice it? Are we truly aware of his presence which empowers us to fulfill our mission as individual Christians and as a church on the whole? Is he here? Is he here this morning? 
Is he truly Lord of this church? Not just in theory, but in reality. That's what we need to wrestle with. Do, do we who speak often of the presence of God among us fail to live as if he really is present with us? Do you as an individual, do we as a church regularly experience God's empowering presence? Or are we guilty of sort of a practical atheism, as it's been said? person in our congregation years ago sent me an email as I preached on the presence of God some years ago. And she wrote this. She said, uh, Pastor Russ, I know I'm not one that often writes you, but I just wanted to share something that came to mind after listening to Sunday sermon, which relates to God being present in the church. When our daughter was about five years old, when she was old enough to write using inventive spelling, we were at church one week, and I had given her paper and pencil to occupy her mind. At the end of the service, she showed me what she had written. And she had apparently been counting how many were in church. I'm not sure if the number is correct, and I don't have the note anymore, but to me it spoke volumes. This was in another church that they were in previous to ours. And this is what the little girl wrote, posted on the screen for you, exactly as she wrote it, 29... People counting God. <laughs> and she writes, that has gone through my mind so many times and has often reminded me of his presence. Out of the mouths of babes, right? That is, I believe, an identifying mark of a healthy individual in Christ and a healthy church. The power for ministry depends on the presence of Christ. God's empowering presence is what Paul got on his knees and pleaded that he would grant for the church at Ephesus and I believe indirectly for every church that would come after the church at Ephesus, including ours. Packed within this prayer, in verses 14 to 21, are some essential things that color the complexion of a church when empowered by the presence of God. The glory, so to speak, that's reflected in the face of a healthy church body as it beholds the glory of the Lord and is being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So when God's presence is manifested in a church body, it is empowered in seven ways. So we got a seven-point sermon this morning. So you've made it here. I'm going to make it worth your while. <laughs> I call them the seven habits of a spiritually empowered church. The first thing that we're talking about here is that we are strengthened by God's Spirit. Look at verses 14 to 16 here, if you would. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now believe it or not, that verse 16, there's a lot packed into that verse right there if you read it. The spiritual strength is not something that you can purchase. It cannot be earned. It's not acquired. You can't work it up, call it up, make it up, or fabricate it. It is, what does it say here? Granted. Paul prays that God would grant you the empowerment. Not merely from the riches of his glory, but what? 
according to the riches of his glory. How much is that? You figure that one out. It's beyond words. God's glory is the entire revealed perfection of who God is in his being. A couple of weeks ago, I defined God's glory for you. You remember that? That was the sermon that I told you not to take notes. Anybody remember what the definition was? Revealed excellence, very close. It's God's displayed excellence. God's displayed excellence. All of who he is displayed and on display for us. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his redemption. Paul's asking that we become spiritually strengthened to the utmost measure of who God is. Without that kind of empowerment in the church, we are severely limited as to what we can accomplish for God. And the problem is, is that we are content to settle for what we can do in our own strength. We're content to settle for that. We are addicted to the mania of human mediocrity. Instead of being hungry for the empowering presence of God. Why? Why should we be content with what we can do, humanly speaking? When God can do so much more if we simply abandoned ourselves to him. Look at a sampling of what God has granted us. Same book, Ephesians. Back to chapter 1. Look at what God's granted us. We read these words so often, we don't really take into consideration that God has granted us these things. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's enough right there to cause you to stop and fall on your knees. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He's granted us that. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. He granted us that. Verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's granted us that. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's granted us these things. That's why Paul prayed the way he did in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I wonder how much of the church's ministry would continue on business as usual if the spirit were suddenly removed from it. You see, the power for ministry is not our wisdom. It's not our strategy. It's not our technology. It's rooted in the presence of Christ through his spirit apart from which we can do nothing. Anglican theologian John Stott wrote these words. He said, quote, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, he says, so the church without the spirit is dead. I wonder, do we have the Moses attitude who when God threatened to cease accompanying them on their journey to the promised land, this is what Moses pleaded. It's in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 15. Moses says, if thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. You get what he's saying? Just stop all activity. Stop any forward progress. If you don't come with us, God, we don't want to go. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight and I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Don't you understand that the empowering presence of Christ in the church is what distinguishes it from all the rest of the people in the world, all the rest of the accomplishments in the world. Then Moses requested something that was unheard of in his day, but the thing which he understood had to be necessary for the work of his ministry. Moses said, I pray thee, show me your glory. And God did it. Moses needed to be assured of God's presence with them before he would attempt anything further. What if the church were that dependent upon God before we attempted anything? Now, not necessarily the visible glory, 
but a profound inward confirmation. Profound. Paul's prayer was for God's strength to be granted according to all the measure of his glory through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Where? What's it say? The inner man. In the inner man. Note that in verse 16, my friends. The sphere of our strength is in the inner man. It is infused strength imparted through the Spirit who dwells within us. Amen? As believers in Christ. Jesus referred to this empowerment when he cried out in John chapter 7. He said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. It's the inner man that the Spirit seeks to strengthen. And we need to be made strong with the power outside of ourselves, don't we? Do you ever feel limited, powerless, unable to accomplish anything for Christ? I do. The situations that I encounter on a regular basis as a pastor one this week, at least one. <laughs> I'm like, God, I, I don't even know how to approach this situation. Can I accomplish anything in this situation? And I happen to be at a round table down in Portland with a bunch of my colleagues from down in southern Maine, pastors from a lot of different denominations, and I brought this to the table. And it's funny that their, their response and their encouragement and their counsel was exactly what Paul is saying here. Saying, listen, the power is not of you. It's of God. The outworking of God's purposes is the result of the inworking of God's spirit. That biblical truth deals a death blow to the practice of medically assisted suicide, for example. It annihilates the nucleus of the prosperity teacher's false gospel of the name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it, or conceive it and receive it, however you want to put it out there. The essence of who we are in Christ and how we can serve him is determined by our spirit-conscious, spirit-controlled, and spirit-filled inner man, not by our outward limitations. So... When people grasp that biblical truth, tremendous physical difficulties and handicaps can be overcome by spiritual strength, and God is glorified by that. So in the case of some people that want to end their lives because they don't feel that they have anything to offer, God says the strength's not of you and your physical being. It's of me and the inner man the most incapacitated human being lying in a hospital bed or in a convalescent home somewhere that can't even walk can still pray. And there's power in that. That's why people like paralysis-laden Johnny Erickson Tata and Billy Graham when he had Parkinson's degree, disease before he died 
and cerebral palsy afflicted David Ring and people like that, are, as well as numerous others, have had vibrant, healthy, powerful, and fruitful ministries for the Lord. That's how they could do that. Because it was and is God's power, not theirs, that makes it work. And they can say with certainty that we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Why is it that we who are healthy think that this truth doesn't apply to us? We operate in the realm of self-deception. The same power that works in them is available to us. Why is it that you think you can't lead the small group or you can't lead a Sunday school class or you can't share Christ with your neighbor? What's stopping you from telling your neighbor about the grace of Christ that can change his or her life? I'll tell you what it is. It's the same thing that stops me from doing it. It's our self-reliance and our lack of dependence on the Holy Spirit to empower us in the situation when we don't know what to say. Spiritual power, says John MacArthur, is not the mark of a special class of Christian, but is the mark of every Christian that submits to God's word and his spirit. Because when God is present, we are strengthened by his spirit. Secondly, you're thinking, wow, this is only point number two. We're indwelt by God's Son. That's point number two here in this prayer. Verse 17, just the first part of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We are indwelt by God's Son. There is a purpose for all this strengthening of the Spirit and the inner man. It is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is not Paul praying for people to accept Christ, by the way. They had already done that. No, he's praying for something much more needed in the church of the 21st century. He prays for Christ to be at home in their hearts. The word Paul uses here has a specific meaning where it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. It's not simply referring to Jesus living inside of us but it means to live in as a home. There's a vast difference, isn't there? When you go to a hotel room, do you live in a hotel room the same way you live in your home? Do you set it up the same way? Christ can't... Let me, let me ask you this. Literally, what Paul is praying is that Christ would be able to relax and feel at home in their hearts. That's what he's praying. Can he in yours? Am I? Christ can't really feel at home in our hearts if we're not allowing the Spirit to clear out the sinful junk that we've got stored up in there, is he? He's not going to be at home in that kind of an environment. Is Christ really settled and at home in you? Or is he more like a visitor which you reluctantly tolerate, you know, those kind of visitors, but sometimes feel that they overstay their welcome. Have you ever had a house guest that you really didn't want to have around? Don't answer that. 
Have you ever stayed with someone and felt that they were being put out by you? You can't get real comfortable, can you, if you feel that? That's exactly what Paul's saying. That's what he's getting at here. The instant we become believers, Jesus takes up residence in our hearts. But he will never be completely satisfied and comfortably at home in us until the junk is cleared away. And that's the whole process of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's what it's all about. That's what the pursuit of holiness is about, right? The, the continual process of faith working in us, sweeping out the sinful tendencies we have adopted over the years in every area of our life and making room for Christ to be at home there. John chapter 14, verse 23 says, if anyone loves me, I love the way the message puts it, by the way. If anyone loves me, he will carefully keep my word and my father will love him and we'll move right into the neighborhood. New American Standard Bible says, and we will make our abode with him. Paul prays that we might not just understand the theological teaching that Christ is in us, but that we might appropriate his presence to our lives. We live differently when we're truly aware of his presence, don't we? When it comes to God, we can live for God, or we can live in the presence of God, but we can never actually live in the absence of God, can we? Yet for some reason, we kind of act like we do in some cases. Here's a case in point. I was reading an article of one of my favorite authors who told about a practice he used to engage in when he was in Christian college, and I immediately connected with that because I can vividly recall the same scenario being played out by me and my colleagues in Bible college who were studying to become pastors. Whenever we used to sit down to eat a meal together at a restaurant or somewhere, okay, we would all surreptitiously put our thumbs up. And whoever was the last one at the table to put their thumb up had to offer the prayer over the food. You ever play that game? Now think about that practice for a minute. Bunch of pastors. <laughs> God's watching this whole thing, this whole time. But we're sticking our thumbs up and the loser has to pray. And then we bow our heads and say, dear God, thanks for this food and we love you so much, right? Or something to that effect. God is present the whole time, isn't he? Amen. But we're acting as if he's not even paying attention to us until we bow our heads and close our eyes. And then he picks up the phone and we're connected. <laughs> but we act as if the thumb stuff escapes his notice. See, we live differently. I wonder if Jesus was sitting at the table with us, would we be doing this? He'd be going, yay, Jesus. <laughs> but he is sitting at the table with us. We live differently when we're aware of God's presence. How many of you drive differently when you see a squad car? <laughs> what do you think, Toby? <laughs> 
I know when I see that car parked out in that driveway coming up Route 17, I come around that corner, I slow right down. <laughs> How many of us drive differently when we think the police aren't around? Why does God make it possible for us to live as if he's absent? You ever think about that? I think it's because he wants us heart and soul, not just when we're aware that we're being monitored. What causes incongruence in my life? You know, so spending so much of my life unaware of God's presence. Years ago, I was given a little booklet, maybe you've read it, entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home, in which the author compares our hearts and lives to a house in which Christ has been invited to live. But that's the only the first step in making the heart Christ's home. In order for him to settle down and be at home there, he must be allowed to go from room to room and renovate and redecorate. And that's what that whole booklet is about. And it goes through, you know, Christ visits the study. That's the mind. And there Jesus sees all kinds of trashy stuff in magazines and literature and pictures on the wall. And his eyes were too pure to behold, all of which were replaced by his word and portrait of himself, which enabled the man to bring all of his thoughts into the captivity of Christ. The next Jesus proceeded to the dining room, the room of appetite. And desires where a worldly menu of selfish desires were once served. And there Jesus replaces those desires with the nourishment and satisfaction of doing God's will instead of his own. Then there's the drawing room and Jesus and the man plan to have fellowship in daily meetings. But little by little the duties of life begin to impose on their time together. See, throughout this house Jesus walks room to room to room. He goes through the workshop where the man's talents were being wasted and going unused. And he goes to the game room where certain associations and activities did not include Christ. And he visits the hall closet where the man had hidden under, his, under lock and key two personal sins which he did not want Christ or anyone else to see. Jesus went through this entire house in this booklet until eventually the man realized that if his heart was truly to be Christ's home, he would have to transfer the entire title over to him. And so dropping to his knees, he says to Christ these words. And this is how the little booklet ends. Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. But from now on, I am going to be the servant. You're going to be the Lord. Here, all that I am and all that I have forever. Now you run the house. I'll just remain with you as a houseboy and a friend. Let me ask you, is Jesus tolerated as a visitor in your life? Or are you allowing his spirit to clean house in order to make Christ more comfortable as a resident? Because that's really what Paul's asking here. What is true for the person is also true for the church as a whole. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Paul writes, in whom you also are being built together into what? A dwelling of God in the Spirit. He must rule the house. That is the result of God's empowering presence in the life of a believer as well as 
in the life of a church. We are strengthened by God's Spirit, indwelt by God's Son. Thirdly, we are mastered by God's love. Verses 17 and 18. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 says this, Now that your obedience to the truth has purified your souls, you can have true love for your Christian brothers and sisters. So love each other deeply with all of your heart or with a pure heart. Fundamental principle of the Christian life and true knowledge of God is that we're rooted and grounded in love. The more we appropriate Christ in us, the more we will become stabilized and secure and rooted and grounded in love. Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us, right? It is produced by the Spirit, poured out into the believer's heart. If you don't have love in your heart, if I don't have love in my heart for the people around me, I need to understand some very important truths, and so do you. You can find them in 1 John. And trust me, these verses are very convicting. They've convicted me this week as I've looked at them. We'll continue to. 1 John verse, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, that God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Are these not convicting verses to us? You see, the only way that we can love our spouses, love our children, love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the only way that we can love our neighbor, the only way that we can ever love our enemies the way God commands us to is through the work of the Spirit of God who is love. We cannot do it any other way. So if you're a Christian and you're not able to love your wife or your husband, the person sitting next to you or your unsaved neighbor down the street, and if you're sitting there saying, I just don't care, I can't do it. In fact, I don't even want to do it. You need to know that a loveless life is a, is a life that is not centered on God's empowering presence. 
It can't be because God is love. And it's got nothing to do with our feelings. It doesn't have anything to do with our incompatibility with others or the adverse conditions of our lives. It has to do with sin in our lives, doesn't it? I I don't mean to sound harsh or simplistic, but biblically, I think that's true. One man hit it squarely and forcefully when he wrote, the absence of love has nothing at all to do with what is happening to us. It has everything to do with what is happening in us. Sin and love are enemies because God and sin are enemies. Amen? If, if there's no love going on in our life, maybe there's sin going on instead. The fact is that when God's presence is empowering us, when we're being strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man, and Christ is settled in at home in our hearts through faith, love happens. It's the byproduct of the Spirit's presence. That's what Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Notice it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. They're taking a, taken as a whole. And I think really it's all summed up and wrapped up in one word. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Then comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But here's the reality of it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy is love's strength. Peace is love's security. Patience is love's endurance. Kindness is love's conduct. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's confidence. Gentleness is love's humility. Self-control is love's victory. When God's presence empowers us, we become mastered by God's love. And so... It's 24 past 11, and I'm going to stop here. So we still have point four and five and six and seven to do. And we'll pick it up there next week. And this is how I will close it with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Standing on a London street corner, G.K. Chesterton was approached by a newspaper reporter And he said to him, sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Chesterton replied, certainly. He said, if the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked at the reporter squarely in the eye and he said, he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us these things that Paul has outlined for us today about the empowering presence of God, about how the Spirit transforms us from the inside out in the inner man and how we can fulfill or how you can fulfill in us the prayer that Paul prays for us, 
that we would be granted according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we might be filled up to the fullness of God. So we pray, our Father, just as Paul prayed, and we erupt with thanksgiving and a benediction and a blessing on you. Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And everyone agreed and said, Amen. Amen.